Okay, as I've already said, and as we're going into the conference week at the end of this campaign, our campaign is called A La Carte Christianity. The big idea of this campaign is that we tend to approach the Christian faith, at least in our Western American culture, through an a la carte perspective, like an a la carte menu. We tend to pick and choose the things that we like from the faith and just order up those, and then we leave the things that we don't like or that are difficult. We leave those, and we don't adopt those into our lives, just like an a la carte menu. But Jesus didn't really leave that option open to us. Jesus taught that if we lose our life for him, we will find it. He taught us to pick up our cross daily and to follow him. So this isn't a teaching of a la carte, that you can just pick and choose the things that you like. So remember, we said, we've been saying throughout this whole campaign that if we approach Christianity with an a la carte perspective, we're making ourselves the authority. We become the locus of authority, judging the words of God, Jesus, based on what we think is right and true, not on what he says is right and true. This is why we view scripture as God's word, and it's so vitally important that it is God's word. It's his revelation to us about who he is and what is true about us, about the world, and about God himself. We have no other way of knowing about God unless God reveals it to us because he's too transcendent and he's too great and glorious for us to know. But through Jesus, he has revealed to us who he really is. <clears throat> so today... What we're going to talk about is this concept that has been uh, growing <laughs> with increasingly rapid speed in the church and in our culture in general. It is that we want to order up a la carte from the Christian faith a little what we're going to call self-actualization, which isn't a term new to me. It's a common term. We're going to order up self-actualization without genuine worship. Okay, so first, what is this idea of self-actualization? Simply the process of realizing one's full potential, becoming everything that you are meant to be, one's true self. Okay. So it's this idea of realizing everything of who you are. It's just becoming everything you're meant to be. It's this process of growing and reaching all of your full potential, which is a good thing, right? It's a very good thing. This is the highest level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If that means anything to you, I'm not really going to go into it a bunch. Basically, he's a psychologist, and his ideas were to... Um, <clears throat> that we have these basic levels of needs, that the bottom level is things like, you know, food, <laughs> provision, safety, those are important things that you have to have. And then as you meet those, you can progress to higher levels of needs. It's a very helpful model. Few people actually reach this self-actualization, which is the top of, hier of his hierarchy of needs. And again, this is a good thing. Self-actualization, it leads us to becoming more aware of ourselves. The way to attain this is to become self-aware, to view yourself and your values, what it is you value, what it is that you are naturally good at, what gifts you have, things like that, and then living out of those so that you live an integrated life. The things that you're pursuing, your goals, your dreams, the things that you do with your time, they align with your values and who you really are. They're not, you're not just like constantly running and putting out fires everywhere aimlessly doing all of this stuff. No, you, you have a goal. You have a trajectory. You have purpose. You have mission in life. And you're getting there intentionally because they're rooted in who you are. So this is a good thing. This is for sure a very good thing. We achieve this from our cultural perspective. This is like the highest good in our secular culture is self-actualization. And we achieve this through what the culture would describe as expressive individualism. Okay, another big term that just means uh, view, 
knowing who you are, knowing your values, and expressing it no matter what. Okay, so don't let anybody kind of hold you down, keep you from expressing yourself. Uh, Frozen is probably the best illustration of this, and it's really a good story, right? It's actually, it's actually good. Elsa, like, breaks free from all of her chains that were imposed on her from society, and she runs out and creates her ice castle. I'm sorry if you haven't seen Frozen. This is also, where have you been? You should, you should watch it. Yeah, if you don't have kids, I guess you probably never watched it at this age. I thought I missed it with Ellie, but no, I didn't. Um, anyways, so she breaks free from all of these restrictions imposed on her, and she goes to live out by herself, alone. But then what she finds is she's all alone. She's isolated. That, yes, she's free to do whatever she wants, but she's alone. And so how the story goes, which is actually quite good, um, she, <laughs> I love it. It's a good, it's good, good movie. Uh, <laughs> she comes back to community, and she realizes that she has to restrict some of her freedoms to do whatever she wants with all of her ice powers out of love for people in her community. So it's, it's a good message. It doesn't quite get to where we need to go, but close, right? But it's good. This, this value is everywhere. Expressive individualism. Be who you are. Be yourself. Be true to yourself, we hear all the time. You do you. This is the highest good in a secular culture. We hear it in music, movies, academia, on ads. You'll hear it everywhere. It is in the cultural air that we breathe. And it's a good thing, by and large, that we achieve this self-actualization and pursue it and that we express who we really are. They're good things, right? I would argue, however, that they cannot be our ultimate goal. They cannot be our end or our aim. When we come to the Christian faith, we can't make self-actualization our goal. We can't come to Jesus and Scripture viewing it just as, how do I live my best life? How do I become my best self? That motive is backwards. Instead, when we come to Scripture, we find that God is God and worthy of worship and praise and glory and honor. And when we praise him and we learn to worship him for who he really is, I, I think we actually do find ourselves. Self-actualization is a byproduct of worship and following Christ and knowing Christ. But it is not the end. So we cannot make it the end. That's my main point today. Don't make self-actualization the end that you're trying to grab from the Christian faith a la carte. Nope. It is good, and it is a byproduct, but it is not the end, and it is not the goal that we are pursuing. Instead, we are pursuing God himself. We are pursuing worship of God himself. <clears throat> because again, in Jesus' words in Luke 9, 23 to 25, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. These are not the words of somebody saying, Hey, if you want to achieve your full potential, you be you. <laughs> That's not the message. No, deny yourself. Pick up your cross, an instrument of death and torture, daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, if you just pursue self-actualization, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. But if you give everything to Jesus, if you surrender to him as Lord of your life, you'll actually find life, your true self, rooted in the Godhead. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, to be fully self-actualized, yet lose or forfeit their very self? The Apostle Paul is a story of somebody who did just this, who 
had achieved self-actualization as far as he could apart from Jesus. In Philippians chapter 3, he goes through and he says, if anyone wants to boast in the flesh or boast of natural things, like, I have more reason to boast than you, is basically what he says. That he was circumcised on the eighth day, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, that from his, his genealogy, the things that he couldn't even control indicate that he was a spiritually solid person, that he was even groomed from, uh, in his genetics to be a successful Pharisee. Like, everything points to his success. He was a Pharisee. As to the law, flawless, he says. So he has purpose and mission even in upholding the, the purity of the law by persecuting the church. So he, he had purpose, he was driven, he was zealous, he had meaning, he had climbed the ladder of his occupation as a Pharisee, that was his social community, he had, he had everything going for him, he was doing great, he had achieved self-actualization to as far as he could at his age and life. But then he says this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He had now given everything for Christ, because that other stuff wasn't nearly as good as Christ. He had found someone better in Jesus to surrender all of his life to. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. It's like all the success, all of the everything. It's garbage that I can gain Christ. That's his perspective. It all becomes about Jesus and knowing him and the righteousness that Christ gives us. <clears throat> so that's Paul's story. We've talked about that a good bit. I just wanted to share this briefly. What we want to go through is theology, the theology of self-actualization. And we see Paul's theology of how we achieve this self-actualization in the Christian life in Romans chapter 7 and into chapter 8. Paul writes, this is all in the context of Paul talking about the law. So basically he said that uh, the law has revealed sin in us because God has told us what is right and wrong in the law of Moses. Now we know what sin is, essentially. But the law was powerless to curb our sinful nature away from sin. And so now he's kind of asking the question like, if that's the case, then is the law evil or is the law bad? And he says, no, the law was good, but it revealed sin and it didn't have any power to actually reform us and change us from our sinful nature. <clears throat> so it's in that conversation that he continues here in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Look at these ontological statements that Paul says about who he is. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. What Paul's getting at is this intrinsic human nature. Like, why? Why can't I, through my own willpower and desire and right thinking, control what I do? He says, I know what the law is. I love the law. He studied the law. He's a Pharisee. He knows it so well. But I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I just can't uphold it perfectly. Why? What's going on within me? And what he's getting at is this sinful nature, that there's this part of us, there's this sinful nature in all of humanity that no matter how much willpower and how much we strive, we can never achieve righteousness fully in and of ourselves because there's something within us that just draws us to sin. We have this sinful nature within us. And if you honestly reflect on your life, 
This is the conclusion that you'll come to. Because here, what Paul's talking about in this I, he's not just talking about himself. There's a few verses prior to this where it wouldn't make sense if he was just talking about himself. He's talking about, he's talking about himself, but as representative of like all of humanity, even, post-fall. So like Adam just means human, right? He's talking about himself and all of humanity, this intrinsic nature that we all have. And he's, he's even referring to the people of Israel a little bit. He's including him, uh, the people of Israel in this as well, their relationship with the law. So what he's pointing to is the whole history of Scripture, that God has given his people the law, and yet time and time and time again, we see story after story of them just failing. Like why? Why can they never live up to the righteous standards of the law? What is going on here? That this has been tried through willpower and self-help. It has been tried for thousands and thousands of years unsuccessfully. Why? That's kind of the question that he's asking. <clears throat> he's using this I to refer to himself, to all of humanity, just this intrinsic nature that we all have. <clears throat> For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. We're going to kind of skip around a little bit because we're going to read all through chapter 8. It's a lot to read, but read it in the devotional. Read it. It's super good. It's crazy good. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. Good does not intrinsically dwell within us in our sinful nature. Four, why? I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Why do we feel so enslaved to sin? Skip ahead to verse 21. So now he's explaining what he's, what he's just said. He does a lot of like, I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I want to do. And it, read it slowly is my only word of advice. <laughs> read it slowly and think, follow his train of thought. It's profound. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. <clears throat> For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. In his excellent commentary on Romans, Tom Schreiner writes on this section of Scripture, the inadequate resources of the eye are highlighted, for it lacks the ability to carry out God's will. What Paul is highlighting here is the inadequacy of I, the inadequacy of me, of you, in our human nature and in ourselves. You are not adequate to uphold the righteous standards of the law, is basically what he's saying. And it's been tried. If you think so, it's been tried for thousands of years and failed. So if you think you're the exception, go for it, I guess. <laughs> but that is not biblical doctrine. What a wretched man that I am, Paul says. The statement is shocking. For us in a self-help culture and self-help world, you're likely arguing against this statement right now. <laughs> yeah, but is, is, is where we tend to go first. Hold on. Pump the brakes. We're going to get there. Okay. What a wretched man that I am. Remember, Paul's talking about humanity apart from what God has done in Jesus. If you think too highly of yourself, you need to hear this statement. <laughs> Remember, Scripture speaks to all of humanity, not just one part or another. If you think too highly of yourself, you need to hear this statement. If you think too low of yourself, you're already telling yourself this, right? So regardless, we can't stop here. Remember, Paul's describing our inadequacies in and of ourselves as humans. 
What a wretched man that I am. We have to be able to say that, though. Because we're not after what will make me feel good. That's an a la carte approach to Christianity. God's not your therapist. We're after what is true. What is true about the deepest parts of who I am? When I explore the depths of my heart, can I say like Paul, man, I really am trying to do what is good. Why can't I within myself? What is going on with me? Can't stop there, though. <laughs> it's not the end of the story. I mean, for real, this is even in uh, Amazing Grace. <laughs> How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Right? Can we even sing that song? Or have we so elevated ourselves to the point of idolatry? Which is the most subtle, most dangerous form of idolatry is the worship of self. And tons and tons of books are being written to convince you not to heed Jesus' words and pick up your cross daily and follow him. To die to yourself and find that you might live. Okay, but we can't stop here. Don't stop here. We have to start there, but we can't stop there. We got to keep going. <clears throat> oh, one of the most beautiful sentences in all of Scripture. Paul writes, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So everything he said up to this point is just like, ah, oh, leading us to how our insufficiencies, how we're incapable in of ourselves, our sinful nature. What a wretched man that I am. It culminates in that declaration. Who will rescue me? Pleading, crying out for help. This is humanity's cry for help. Rescue me. Because I can't do this in and of myself. And he responds in thanks and praise. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here, as we approach Scripture, we can't approach it through this self-actualization mode of how can I make myself better by using God and his words. No. We need to declare like Paul, who will deliver me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Instead of focusing so much on me and how I can attain everything that, everything that is potentialed within me, to say, God, what have you done for me? How have you elevated me? How have you lifted me up? Worship. Starts with worship. That's our focus. That's our end. That's our goal. <clears throat> so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So just like we've been talking about throughout this whole campaign, about he can't go to Easter without Good Friday. You can't have resurrection life without death to self. So you also can't just skip right ahead to chapter 8. You're gonna, we're going to read through a lot of chapter 8, and a lot of these verses will probably be familiar to you because these are the ones that we repeat. We don't really repeat verse 24 very much because it's sad, right? <laughs> but 28, we repeat a ton, and we memorize these verses. But we can't jump right there without exploring what Paul has said before. We have to recognize our depravity before we recognize the grace of God given to us. Or else the grace of God is small. If we think, like, I can just pull myself up by my own bootstraps, God's grace is very small. Nope. We are completely depraved apart from Jesus and his work for us. And in chapter 8, is everything that God has done. It's hard to read it any other way. 
This is all what God has done for us. So again, it's not a, how do I achieve self-actualization? It's how, how has God saved me, redeemed me, made me new? It's what God has accomplished for us. Therefore, he says, explaining, transitioning from what he's just talked about, about the sinful nature of humanity and the law and all of that stuff. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, there's no condemnation for you. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That struggle of, I don't do what I want to do, but I do what I don't want to do. Like Jesus has set you free from that because now your righteousness is in Christ. And he's given you the Spirit of God who gives you life. This is what God has done for you. You are set free. Skip ahead to verse 9. So much good in there, but I'll preach for three hours if we read it all. You, however, he says, are not in the realm of the flesh. He's talking to those who are in Christ, those who have been given the Spirit of God, those who have been saved, justified, chosen by God, but are in the realm of the Spirit. So that former flesh, that sinful nature, that's not the realm that you live in anymore. If you've been made new in Christ, now you live in the realm of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom God has given you, the third person of the Trinity who dwells within you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Having the Spirit of God living in you, dwelling within you, confirming everything that Paul is about to say is a foundational part of the Christian life. It is essential in the Christian life. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not in Christ. But, he says, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, what a thought. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that type of power is living in you if you are in Christ. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. So, even though our bodies are subject to decay, and <laughs> talked to Seth on the way out. I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this. His neck looks stiff. And I was like, Seth, what happened to your neck? He's like, I woke up. And I'm like, yeah, that's what happens post-30, right? Like I just start waking up to pain. And I don't understand it. Our bodies are decaying. <laughs> They're breaking down. We have these pains and the suffering that we experience, but because of the Spirit of God whom he's given us, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling within us, we have eternal life. And he's making our bodies new, and they will be new in the new creation one day. And we have that hope. That's pretty cool when you think about it, right? That my body won't be subject to this pain and suffering for all eternity. That it'll be made new. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the deposit that this is true. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. You are a child of God. Remember, this isn't the path of how do I achieve my best life now by latching on to truths of Christianity. No, this is look at what God has done for you. Look at how he has elevated you. Look at how he loves you. We are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought uh, about your adoption to sonship. This is what the Spirit has done in you. He's brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, this loving, endearing, relational term, God, Father. 
the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You're a child of God. God's adopted you into his family. What a beautiful, glorious truth. We're heirs of the kingdom of heaven and the new creation. Look at what God has done for you. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings, he's writing to a church who's experiencing great division in the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. They're facing the threat of persecution from the Roman Empire, which will soon be realized in Nero. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. That these, what we're experiencing now, the pain, the suffering, the relational tension, all of the angst, all of the problems of living in a world full of sinful people in a creation that is exposed to sin and destruction and decay, that the curse is on us. These present sufferings that are results of that, they're not worth comparing. Like they can't hold a candle to the glory that we will have with Jesus and the new creation that will be revealed to us. And notice we don't glorify ourselves. We don't achieve this ourselves. The glory that will be revealed in us. This glory that is in us, this is passive. It will be revealed in us by God. This isn't something that we achieve in and of ourselves. 28. And we know, this is one of those famous verses that you've probably memorized or heard at some point. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What a statement. <laughs> what a statement of purpose, of meaning, that we can be driven towards God's purposes, God's will, knowing that it all doesn't depend on us. This is his main point right here. How can all things, no, notice he doesn't say that all things are good. No, there's evil. You know, if he said all things are good, there, that would be false on his face, right? There is evil that we've all experienced. But even in that evil, God works things for good. It's just like Joseph and his brothers in, the, in Genesis. He's sold into slavery. He's falsely accused and put in prison. He suffers a very long time. And yet, at the end of the story, he tells his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so when we can pray like Jesus taught us to in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. God will accomplish his will because he is sovereign. He is bringing creation to its divinely ordained end. And we can trust in that, that he will make all things new. And so if we can say, God, your will be done, and your will will be good, all things eventually work together for good. This isn't a statement that says your life is going to be great and easy, and you're going to get everything you want out of life. No, it's a statement that, like, my will has been transformed into God's will. So yes, then I kind of will get what I want out of life, because I want what God wants. And that's the best way to live. <laughs> what a beautiful way to have peace in life. To lay down your will and say, God, your will be done. Even if it means walking through suffering and pain, your will be done. And it will be good in the end. Because I trust that you are faithful. And even if I suffer now, you will carry out your plan in the end. Whew. Beautiful framework for life. We don't have to think that everything depends on us and strive and strive and strive and strive and never fully reach our ends. No, because we can trust that God will do it but we have the joy of participating with him in it. That's awesome. It's awesome. It's like going to work with dad. I think about it like that. 
<laughs> this doesn't depend on me, <laughs> right? <laughs> My son Shiloh's not going to fix the garage door, right? <laughs> but he can help me, and we can just work together. Oh, love it. All right. Verse 29 and 34. Okay, so by way of... Uh, By way of clarification, I'm going to preach this text through my theological framework, okay? Uh, I'm preaching it through the Reformed Calvinist uh, framework that God chose us before we chose him. If you know what that means, cool. If you don't, we can talk about it later. I don't really have time to go through all of it. But if I preach this from a different one, I'd, you can interpret this from a different angle, from a different perspective. I think it loses a lot of its force of what Paul's actually trying to say here, but just by clarification, okay? You can interpret this in a different way, but I'm going to preach it through my theological framework. Remember, this isn't what we have done. This is what God has done for us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, God has chosen us and he is faithful to carry out what he has started in you, forming you into the image of Christ, that he will carry that out. So even if we seem to still struggle with sin, even this side of knowing Jesus God will be faithful and he will carry it out to the end. He will make you into the image of Christ because he's foreknown you, like he foreknew Abraham, like he foreknew Israel, that he chose them and he put his love and approval on them. And in spite of their many sins and failures, he didn't abandon them. He remained faithful to them. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. It's not some who he calls, but some rejected him. No, all those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, this is all what God has done for us. This is what God has done in us. This isn't a self-help, self-actualization message. This is a God Look at what you've done for me. Worship, thanksgiving, praise. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's previously said the Spirit of God is interceding for us. Now Jesus is interceding for us. <sighs> Beautiful truths to cling to. God is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. The Holy Spirit is praying for you. You're among the people of God. Then he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If this love has been given to us, if God has done all of this for us, what can separate you from his love? Is anything more powerful than God? Answer, no, right? <laughs> Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, these are big categories, big terms, all these bad things that can happen to us, right? Those will not separate you from the love of God. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice he says, in these things. 
It's not in spite of these things or once we've gotten through these things on our own. No, it's even in the midst of our troubles and tribulations and our sufferings and our pain that we conquer. Just like Jesus in in the cross, he conquered. He didn't conquer in spite of the cross. He conquered through the cross by dying for our sins. He conquered evil through evil acts by other people. We are more than conquerors, not in ourselves, not because we're so great in him or through him who loved us. Yet not I, but through Christ in me, right? It is through Christ that we are conquerors. Four, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful truth. Band, you guys can come and get set up here. Nothing will separate you from God's love. If he has chosen you, if he's predestined you, if he's adopted you into his family, nothing will separate you from his love. He's got you. This is our healthy self-concept. This isn't to approach Christianity from that perspective of God, help me live my best life now. Help me think of myself as the best me. No, it's look at what God has done for me. This is how God views me. We find ourselves then not in ourselves, not in looking at us and thinking about me. We find ourselves not in ourselves, but in God and in what he has done for us. And all these beautiful truths of how he has saved us and everything that that means. Lord, God, you are so good. You are so good to us that you would give us all this, that you would be so gracious, so merciful, so loving, so kind, so forgiving, that, Lord, what a wretched person that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to worship our Lord, our Savior, our God, our King, who is indeed worthy of worship. Lord, God, as we worship you, as we lay down our crowns, as we, Lord, give you the glory, the honor, the praise that only you deserve, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to us that you would call us, Lord, towards this healthy self-concept of who we are, how you view us. Reveal that to us, Lord. The glorious, beautiful truths of how you view us, of who we are, not just how we feel about ourselves, because that's so fickle. That changes, Lord, but how you truly view us. Spirit of God, would you stir in our hearts to So, Lord, take the words of Scripture, take what we're about to say, Lord, to accomplish something spiritual within us, something true. That, Lord, we wouldn't just believe these things as truth that is out there, but we would believe these things as truth in me, about me, for me. Spirit of God, we need you to do that, to reveal that in us. So, Lord, we seek you. We surrender to you and your will and what you want to say. 
and how you want to form us more into the image of Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments here. All right. Remember, our big idea is that we find ourselves not in ourselves, not in pursuing ourselves, but as we were just singing, in laying down ourselves and laying down our crowns and pursuing God, Him, and what He has done for us and responding in gratitude and thanks and praise and worship. You guys, I've said this so many times before, but I'm going to keep repeating. This is why the beauty of Scripture is so true and so glorious. It just speaks to the most fundamental nature of who we are in a way that is so profound that we don't find anywhere else in culture and any other ideas that are out there. We must build our self-identity and our concept of who we are on the truth of Scripture. If we build it on self-help books or any other psychology or any other philosophy or anything else, we're likely only getting one side of the story. We're missing parts of it. So much counseling, so much psychology and other self-help books are not written for those who are arrogant. They're not written for narcissists. Narcissists don't buy self-help books, right? <laughs> they already know what they need and what they need to do, at least so they think. So then we're only getting one side of the story if we build our sense of identity and self on those. Instead, we must build it on Scripture, which is just so true. This truth that we just read and uncovered in Romans 7 and 8, it speaks to both. It speaks to both the proud and the arrogant and the narcissist and says, you didn't accomplish this in yourself, so what room do you have for boasting? <laughs> It says, look at what God has done for you and the grace and the mercy that he has given you that you just accept and believe to be true and live in. So it humbles. And then to those who view themselves with too small, too little of a self-worth, look at what God has done for you. Look at how your creator, the great I am, the one who is eternally existent, the all-powerful one who has created everything, Look at how he loves you. So don't view yourself any less than how he loves you and the way he thinks of you. It elevates us. It's beautiful. It's true. <clears throat> Dallas Willard said, <laughs> I love this. Okay, let's start here. Christian Smith, sociologist who studied the views of youth and by extension adults, I think this is true as well, how we in the Western church, in the evangelical church in particular, tend to view our relationship to God. He characterized it as moralistic, therapeutic deism. We're going to start stick on the therapeutic part. We tend to view God as our therapist, as God's here to help me achieve my self-actualization. God's here to help me be the best me. Nope. <laughs> if that's how you view it, you won't achieve worship and you won't achieve self-actualization either. You'll lose them both. Dallas Willard says, wanting God to be God is very different than wanting God to help me. <laughs> so good. <laughs> it's so true. So many of us pursue the Christian faith just wanting God to help me 
not God to be the glorious one, the transcendent one, the all-powerful one, the one who we exist to glorify him. And yet he still glorifies us as we just read because he's so loving and gracious and merciful and kind. (laughs) But we start with worship. We have to get there to worship, right? This well-known quote of C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory He says he read in a periodical that the most important thing about a person is how they think of God. And he says, no, it's how God thinks of us that's more important. I think we're kind of splitting hairs there, but whatever. Um, (laughs) He writes, the promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. So he's saying is this promise that God will glorify us. It's only possible by the work of Christ, and it is just so incredible. He goes on, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? But delighted in, thanks be to God, (laughs) who has redeemed us in Jesus Christ our Lord. But delighted in, as an artist delights in his work. Think of something you've created and delighted or a father and his son. Beautiful pictures. It seems impossible, he says, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. We can hardly grasp this glorious truth that we are our participant in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, but delighted in by God, if we are in Christ. It is a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but it is so. We need to view ourselves the way God views us. So what does God think of us if you are in Christ? You have the Spirit of God. You're chosen, destined, called, justified, glorified, as Paul says. There's no condemnation for you. You've been set free from sin. We have life in the Spirit. We please God. We can belong to God. We're children of God. We have hope in our future redemption of our bodies and creation as a whole being made new. Spirit intercedes for us. Jesus intercedes for us. All things work together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purposes. We have been foreknown, predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. We've been called, justified, glorified by God. God gives us all things. God justifies us. No one condemns us. God has eternally secured us in his love. We are more than conquerors in the midst of our troubles and hardships, persecutions, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. That's pretty great. (laughs) How God views us and how God loves us and what he has done for us. So again, don't think of yourself any more than a recipient of God's grace and mercy. You haven't earned it. You haven't achieved it of yourself. Don't think of yourself as any less than a recipient of God's grace and mercy if you are in Christ. He loves you dearly, and he has proven it in the cross by giving you all of this. This isn't, we don't approach Christianity from a perspective of how do I be my best self. We approach Christianity and say, God, thank you. I worship you. I praise you. And in the process, we have purpose, we have mission, we have meaning, we have identity, 
We have destiny. We achieve self-actualization, but only through worship. Lord, oh, your word is so true. It is so beautiful. It just appeals to reality. Lord, we thank you that in spite of ourselves, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You have redeemed us. You have given us your righteousness. You have saved us. And so, Lord, we respond in worship and praise, and we give you glory and honor that only you deserve. And in doing so, Lord, as a byproduct, we find ourselves, our true self. Not to think too much of ourselves or think too low of ourselves, but just as you see us, Lord. So, Lord, give us that image. Holy Spirit, reveal that to us. Draw us to yourself. Remind us that we are your child when we are in Christ, when we are tempted to doubt it. Remind us that we are conquerors in the midst of our suffering and persecutions. And Lord, when we can't possibly see how this scenario will turn out for good, give us confidence in your will being done, that you are sovereign, that you are God, and you will bring your ends to fruition. You are faithful. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Let's stand and let's worship our Savior for just one brief moment. And if you need prayer, as we were singing, as I was preaching, if there's something that God was just calling you to, if you think too much of yourself or too low of yourself, if you don't know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that you are a child of God, receive prayer. Go get prayed for. All of creation Singing this song of oldest age Echoing heaven We join the angels as they sing We join the angels and we sing Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God Worthy, worthy
You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of all our honor and glory and praise. God, would we orient our lives around you? Lord, would LifeBridge be a place full of people who orient, who center our lives around you? God, that we would find our purpose, that we would find our joy, that we would find our identity, that we would discover who we are by discovering you and submitting to you, to your way, to your truth, to your life. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for worshiping with us. We hope you have a wonderful Sunday. You can still get prayer if you'd like prayer. Thanks for being with us.